Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education only, not to diagnose things on anybody's eyes. So we figured that reviewing for the OCAPS, boards, or clinic is better when you don't have to do it alone. Each week, we take a high-yield topic and talk about the why and the how. This week, we're talking about vertical gaze palsies because I think Ben has a very unique and interesting case to share with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is something that I had to review at length recently because I saw a patient with that problem, vertical gaze palsy, and had to figure it out on the spot to make sure that they didn't die. So let's talk about that case. So I got a call at one of our smaller local EDs that we had a 65-year-old man who had, you know, routine medical problems, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, a mature cataract in his left eye. Now, the original reason they called me was because, quote, he couldn't see out of his left eye. But when I saw the patient, you know, he, you know, he knew that he had poor vision in his left eye because of the mature cataract. But he felt like his, quote, his eye was rolling into his head. That was his, like, real chief complaint. So, you know, I was looking at him. And was, you know, he had a um, uh, left exotropia at the time. So I wondered, hmm, does he have a sensory exotropia? That's where you have some kind of sensory deprivation in one eye. And then there's a natural tendency to have an exotropia. So perhaps he just became aware of that exotropia. So, you know, I did my routine exam. His vision was hand motion in that mature cataract eye. Um, intraocular pressures were normal. But then when I decided to do extraocular movements, he had full left gaze full right gaze but then he couldn't look up you know i was like oh huh maybe he's just like not trying so i really tried to get him to crank his eyes up but he was like huh doc this is weird i can't do this so he wasn't even aware that he had troubles looking up and then i tried to have him look down and it was like the same thing you know it was maybe minus three and up and down gaze like you could go just a little bit but he really couldn't look up or down you know, everything else was stable. You know, the B scan was stable. Um, the, uh, the the other eye, the right eye looked totally fine. So I didn't know whether this was a chronic problem, a new problem, or what was going on. But, and, you know, it, I didn't know if it was actually even related to his chief complaint that, quote, he felt like his eye was rolling into his head. But sitting there with him in this ED, he had to figure out what to do. So in this episode, we will review how to think about isolated vertical gaze palsies like in this case so hopefully if you ever run into this situation too you can use this framework to solve the problem and i encourage the listener while they're listening if if you already know what's going on then that's great um but but to think throughout the episode try to figure out why this guy can't look up or down and i'm also you know just talking about it beforehand pretty impressed that you were able to get through all this basically on your own independently I was asking you if our one of our attendings had given you any input if it was like a clinic patient, but for you to come to this diagnosis right when you needed to in acute setting on your own is that's uh, that's chief resident material right there, bud. But also, also a really good example of going through your basic fundamental parts of every exam, the parts that you know we all kind of want to skip sometimes, like extraocular movements, especially when the chief complaint has nothing to do with that. Um, right. And then putting it all together. So kudos right. to you, man. Yeah, I mean, uh, we'll see whether I deserve kudos or not by the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, Andrew, let's talk a little bit about what coordinates vertical gaze. You know, it's a lot of complex neuroanatomy, and we're not going to go into a full detail, but we're going to talk about it enough 
like the parts that you need to know, um, we'll talk about in detail as an ophthalmologist. So at in, least everything that you'd be tested on. So. Right, exactly. Or more importantly, everything you'd be tested on. And honestly, you know, I'm really glad that I had reviewed this before so I could, I, I'll be honest, during, when this case happened, I looked everything back up to make sure I had it right. But, um, but, uh, but you know, it's, this is why it's important to know these seemingly random facts is, you know, you never know when you need to put it together in a clinical situation. So in brief, Vertical gaze is coordinated by three components mainly, um, and we're going to go a little bit more, Angel's going to go a little more into the subtleties of um, other components that are important for it. But if you have to remember something about vertical gaze, remember that it's mainly coordinated by three things, all conveniently in the dorsal midbrain. There's the um, rostral interstitial nucleus of the MLF, the medial longitudinal fasciculus. You, uh, hopefully, everyone you know has at least read about the MLF because it's so important in horizontal gaze um, coordination. But the rostral component of it, so uh, was that beak, beak side. Uh- Oh, yeah, rostrals I guess Rostrals towards so. the beak. <laughs> yeah, rostrals towards snout. one's, uh, yeah, one, towards one's snout. Oh, that component beaks, of the I MLF. Talking about here. <laughs> yeah. Um, it coordinates vertical gaze as opposed to horizontal gaze. The other two parts are the posterior commissure, which is nearby the MLF, also in the dorsal midbrain, and something called the interstitial nucleus of Cajal, which is just another nucleus that's in the midbrain. That's an integrator not only for vertical gaze, but torsional gaze. Basically think that all three of these things need to work together to to coordinate vertical gaze. Yeah, so among them, the, the three things that Ben mentioned, just to describe a little bit about each one, that R.I., MLF, the rostral interstitial nucleus, it's, you can think of it as like the initiating engine. It has burst neurons that are excitatory for vertical and torsional gaze. And again, we are discussing vertical gaze here and things that will trigger it. So this is like the thing that originates that among these three elements. The interstitial nucleus of Cajal, which I always think has like this Spanish flair to it, you can think that it's the, where the where the buck stops, it integrates all these different neural inputs to see what the what you're actually going to come up with for your output. The RIMLF, you know, it's either always on or it's excitatory a fair amount of the time because it does have inhibitory signals that are always feeding to it. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. But I think because there's this mixture of excitatory and inhibitory signals, there needs to be some kind of like arbitrator at the end. And that's what the interstitial nucleus of Cajal is. You can think of Cajal as like the guy making the decisions. And the posterior commissure, if you remember from your neuroanatomy, is just the thing that kind of allows uh, a lot of... Um, it decussates, right? Yeah. Decussates. <laughs> a decussate. Yeah. And that, that's pretty um, important when it comes to, you know, pupillary uh, reflex pathways, which we're not talking about necessarily here with vertical gaze, but it's related. So these yep. are, again, um, and to, again, kind of disclaim, we're just talking about saccadic vertical movement. So we're talking about vertical gaze, but not even all kinds of vertical gaze. We're talking about saccades because there are different pathways for vestibular or smooth pursuit movements. And as Ben mentioned, what we're talking about now, these three elements are all in the dorsal midbrain, again, the rostral interstitial MLF, the interstitial nucleus of call, and the posterior commissure, they're all up in the dorsal midbrain, which is the highest part of your brainstem. 
Um, the smooth pursuit movements, you know, just for some reference, those are more controlled by things in the medulla and pons, a little f- more inferior, a little less beakish, snoutish, rostralish. You can think of saccades as like, you know, this isn't really the way people divide it, but they're kind of like higher level functions because you're the one typically making your saccades happen, so you're you're kind of volitionally in control of them. Whereas the smooth pursuits, you know, those are a little more of a reptilian brain kind of thing. So higher order, lower order, the higher order stuff, the saccadic stuff is higher up in the brainstem, in the midbrain, lower order stuff, smooth pursuit stuff, that's down in the medulla and the pons. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, that's hopefully the anatomy that you'll need to know as we continue to try to think about why the patient I saw couldn't look up or down. Now we can move on to what a, a reasonable differential diagnosis for vertical gaze limitations are. There's three, I think, that are you know, most common for this type of situation where you have an isolated vertical gaze limitation. If you have horizontal gaze limitations as well, then the differential expands wildly to include things that can affect the orbit as a whole, um, you know, things like thyroid eye disease, restrictive causes, which we'll talk about for a little bit, but aren't the main three that we'll cover. So the main three that we'll cover are one, the normal up gaze limitations in the elderly, two, progressive supranuclear palsy, and three, dorsal midbrain syndrome. Uh, the other causes we won't go into too much detail about. Um, so th- the ones I'll mention are one, restrictive causes. The The main thing to think about is, you know, thyroid eye disease is one of the most common causes of restrictive eye movements. And to review, the muscles that are most typically affected in order of uh, decreasing frequency are I am slow. So I am S-L-O. So in order, they're inferior rectus, medial rectus, superior rectus, lateral rectus, then the oblique muscles. So that's the typical order that you'd see uh, problems from thyroid eye disease. I will point out in the original recording, we had this uh, order incorrect. Thank you for our listener, Tiago Fernandez, who noticed this, and this is the corrected version of the episode. There's also kind of more rare and unusual conditions like Neiman-Pick syndrome, Whipple disease, and perineoplastic encephalitis, and even ALS, uh, commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease, that are known for their vertical gaze limitations, but they are uh, very rare, unusual, and we won't go into too much detail in this episode about them. I, I, I do want to mention something Please. about the Neiman-Pick syndrome because we did a whole episode on like all these metabolic disorders and stuff, and I don't think we mentioned anything about vertical gaze or gaze palsies at all amongst them because like they're super I – th- I feel like they're poorly defined and not really um, a major element of any of those metabolic disorders. Like we're talking Tay-Sachs, sphingolipidosis, and in this case, again, Neiman-Pick syndrome – um, but when I looked into Neiman-Pick, it seemed a bit of an outlier because it's not even all forms of Neiman-Pick that have this vertical gaze problem. It's really just something called Neiman-Pick type C, as in cat. Looking, Trying to look through it a little bit more, like, oh gosh, did we miss vertical gaze problems amongst the other stuff? There is a pretty decent uh, table of all of the metabolic syndromes in the PEDS book of the BCSC. Um, in the chapter title, like Ocular Manifestations of Systemic Disease, I think you'll see that a few other of the metabolic problems are known to cause some extraocular motility issues, including Gaucher's, Gaucher's, I f- still forget how we decided to call that. 
But honestly, again, the gaze policies among them seem kind of low yield, and we're not sure if they're even that accurate because the tables kind of disagree with each other if you uh, compare them across different books. Like the entry in that table for Neiman Pick is nystagmus, and that's not at all what we're talking about. Uh, vertical gaze palsies not being accurately categorized as nystagmus, I think. So the answer is who knows, but at least we thought about it. Ben. <laughs> yeah, we thought about it. <laughs> and uh, I think uh, from there, I'll, I'll kind of stop nitpicking and probably let you talk about your main three oh, yeah, no. again for this, right? So the the main three di- differentials we'll talk about are one, normal upgaze limitations in the elderly. So if you're listening to this podcast, I've done a number of eye exams now, and you may have noticed that the older someone gets, the less up they can look. Well, you might call a minus two up gaze palsy and like a young person may just be normal for someone who's older. And they've done studies to help kind of elucidate this. In young people, we can do about 40 degrees of up gaze, you know, 40, 45 degrees of up gaze. As you age, that goes down and down and down until it's more like 20 degrees, you know, when you're older than 70 or so. So so that that's just like, that's just normal. You know, it's not restrictive. They don't actually know why it happens. My personal pet theory is that in modern society, we don't ever look up because we live in buildings with ceilings. But I mean, I have no proof for that. That's just how I remember that that is normal. And that's um, how you know how to get the drop on Ben Young now. Yeah, or anyone. Seriously, when's the last time you <laughs> looked up? Okay, I challenge you to think about that. Like, what's the color of your ceiling right now without looking? Uh, yeah, that's, what, that's what I... Yeah. The same. Yeah. <laughs> what? What is it? <laughs> Yeah, it's blue. You didn't know that, did you, Andrew? All okay. right. So, <laughs> <laughs> I've never been to Andrew's current apartments. I, I was hoping to be lucky, guessing. Anyways, okay, but the key thing to know about the normal upgaze limitation in the elderly is they never have a downgaze deficit as a result of this. They, no matter what age you are, you all in the study that you know looked at this, and I think it was in the seventies, all age groups had the same de- amount of downgaze. You know, and it kind of matches my theory of modern society. You, we look down a lot at a lot of different things, but we never look up. Anyways, that's just my theory. <laughs> Ken Young's that's, theory of modern society. Not, yeah, that's uh, yeah. A- <laughs> this is we live in a society, friends. So, <laughs> so, you know, initially when I was seeing my patient and he couldn't look up, I thought, okay, well, he was like oh, yeah, sixty-five. He's not he's not very old, but maybe he just has you know difficulty looking up or the effort is hard. But when he couldn't look down, we knew that we had to cross that off the list. So the second thing on the list is progressive supranuclear palsy. Oh, um, this is one of those kind of Parkinsonian-like syndromes. Um, and what you'll see has very many similarities to, to, to Parkinsonian dementia and Parkinsonian disease. But there are a few key differences. First, let's highlight um, some of the key features of progressive supranuclear palsy, i.e. PSP. And those include up and down gaze restriction. And you know, the supranucleus involves the dorsal midbrain. You know, because the dorsal midbrain is above or rostral, you know, to, to the cranial nerve nuclei. So a supranuclear palsy will affect those vertical gaze centers we talked about uh, earlier in the podcast. And classically, people with PSP have worse down gaze, but they can have limited up and down gaze. They have these horizontal square wave jerks. So some people call them saccades, but really they're just, uh, it's like, it's like a nystagmus 
but it's, it's a fast phase in both directions. Nystagmoid, Amanda yeah, would tut tut at you. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's, it's nystagmus like, i.e., nystagmoid. Whatever. She she's not going to listen to this episode. Actually, she might. <laughs> <laughs> she might. She should. This she is probably thing. should. And then um, but but she is very very uh, busy right now. Anyway. And uh, do you want to talk about the problem of vertical scots? Because I actually I missed that you wrote this note. Oh, sure. Volitionally, vertical saccades are slow, but reflex vertical saccades are normal. So you'll be sitting there with your patient trying to make them look up or down, and they'll just not do it, and you'll be like, what's wrong with them? But then if you throw like a ball in their lap, they will look down at it by reflex, and then you'll be super confused, like, what's going on? That's actually a very typical pattern for progressive supranuclear palsy. So they won't be able to do it on command. They won't be able to volitionally initiate vertical scots, but they'll be able to unconsciously do it by reflex. And that uh, that's a pretty distinct thing that I'd say is a high-yield fact about progressive supranuclear palsy. If only I had a ball when I was in that ED to throw on this guy's lap. Yeah, but, it would have helped uh, unravel the whole mystery. <laughs> you, could, you could have thrown anything, you know, just... Uh, so the next feature, fancy, like twenty diopter <laughs> lens in his lap. Yeah, throw my twenty. See if you could catch it. Yeah. <laughs> that's the real. Uh, that's the pow test of PSP. Yeah, go, 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 whatever. Twenty diopters. Yeah. I don't need that thing anymore. Uh, the next feature <laughs> has to do with eyelids. Um, in PSP, they have blepharospasm, which is definitely common between um, Parkinsonian, uh, well, Parkinson's syndromes and PSP. Um, just classic, they have bilateral blepharospasm. So you have a patient with blepharospasm, and you can always ask them if they've been diagnosed with Parkinson's. It, it's a fairly common feature of Parkinson's and PSP. They also have something called an eyelid opening apraxia. The difference between this, like a third nerve palsy and a proactive eyelid opening is it's difficulty initiating the eyelid opening. Like if you if you help lift their eyelid. And then it's easy for them to keep it open. It's just hard for them to start the movement of opening it. So, like, oftentimes they'll use, like, their frontalis, for example, to try to, like, initiate the drive the eyelid opening movement. And then once it's open, they're okay. But then, you know, if they close their eyes, it's hard for them to get them open again. Okay. So that's the eyelid stuff. Um, They have poor convergence, too, just like in Parkinson's disease. And in many... And then ultimately, they can get other Parkinsonian-like symptoms, such as uh, bradykinesia and uh, balance difficulties. Classically, though, they don't have the same tremor that is in Parkinson's disease. A couple other kind of sad prognostic differences is that PSP, the, all these Parkinsonian movement problems worsen faster in PSP compared to like regular garden variety Parkinson's. And even more sad kind of is that the levodopa treatments that sometimes work for a while and Parkinson's don't really work for PSP. So I remember on my like neuro rotations as a student, seeing my neuro preceptor talk to clinic patients and being like, well, sorry, you have this like really, really tough form of Parkinson's with with the eye problems that you're describing. And in general, it's just a tougher one to treat. So yeah, it's sad. But uh, to go through, let's go through the list of the PSP characteristics again, just to give people yeah. like a overview of it. Because again, yeah. this is super high yield. You don't really find it in one place in the BCSC. So, All right, hit it. PSP will have up and down gaze restriction, classically worse than down gaze. Are we doing this on a list? No, you're doing it all. Oh, what? <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, you all got right. a sign. <laughs> up and down gaze restriction, 
Number two, it'll have typically horizontal square wave jerks will be a big characteristic. Number three, they will have something with their vertical saccades such that they can't really do it on command, but they'll be able to do it by reflex. So the whole throw a ball in their lap example is distinctive. Number four, they've got this uh, weird twitchiness with their eyelids. If they can get them open at all, they have both blepharospasm and eyelid opening apraxia. Number five, they've got poor convergence. And number six, uh, they have other Parkinsonian-like movement problems and symptoms, except their Parkinsonianism is worse prognostically than garden variety Parkinson's. And, you know, to take it back to the case, uh, take us back to this ED yeah. where I was just with this guy. So, you know, I after I was, you know, did that first exam with eye movements, I did it again. And I tried to pay really careful attention to see what was going on because, you know, this seemed like it almost was like a PSP. Again, I didn't know the chronicity. PSP is progressive, so it's a chronic problem. But as I was having him look up and down, I could see his like eyelids kind of subtly twitching. And I thought, hmm, is this the blepharospasm? Maybe his PSP doesn't know it. So that really led me in that direction. But let's talk about the last significant diagnosis for a vertical case palsy before we finish our diagnosis. And that is dorsal midbrain syndrome. Which has another name, right? Yeah, it has a couple names, honestly. So yeah. what's what's one of the what's the one that you were thinking of? Uh, Paranod syndrome is what yeah. is what our neuroopth attending always called it when I was on rotation with them. So that's why I was like, oh, yeah, and I that's what it is. Whatever. I mean, it's it's also <laughs> Paranod syndrome. So yeah, it has a couple names. They all mean the same thing. Let's so dorsal midbrain syndrome is a syndrome that affects the dorsal midbrain, and it, it can be a number of things. It could be a mass lesion. It could be increased intracranial pressure because the dorsal midbrain is right at the base of the fourth ventricle where the cerebral aqueduct is. So you can imagine it's almost like if you had increased pressure in your third ventricles, for example, it's like the pressure is like a finger pushing down on the dorsal midbrain. And the last most common cause are cerebral hemorrhages or ischemic events to the dorsal midbrain. And just so you know, by age range, so the most common cause in an infant is uh, obstructive hydrocephalus. In a child, it's uh, a pineal gland tumor, so mass effect on the dorsal midbrain. In an adult, it's an ischemic or hemorrhagic event in the area. But that said, even in adults, if they have obstructive hydrocephalus, they can still get dorsal midbrain. So when you see someone with obstructive hydrocephalus, don't just look for a papilledema and the associated, you know, six nerve palsies and such. I also look for dorsal midbrain syndrome, uh, especially the main four signs that Andrew is going to tell us right now. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Main four things. The first one is in dorsal midbrain syndrome, there's a paresis or at least a limitation of upgaze. So these people preferentially kind of just look downwards. Fairly straightforward. The second thing is called Collier's sign, or really that's just lid retraction. This goes along with if they also have the downward gaze preference, you can imagine that would you'd be seeing a lot of their like upper sclera because their lids would be retracted and they'd be looking down. That combination of Collier's sign plus the downward gaze preference is called the setting sun sign, which is very typical for dorsal midbrain slash paranod. Number three is this convergence retraction nystagmus, which is the co-contraction of more than one extracular muscle. And this is pretty distinct too, and it's thought to be because there's damage to the nerve fibers that are usually inhibiting the third cranial nerve nucleus. And in, in 
I guess at rest at baseline, that nucleus CN3 just wants to like activate all extracular muscles all the time, or at least all the ones that it's in control of. Um, but it also it also always has somebody kind of like putting a steadying hand on its shoulder to calm it down. Those are the inhibitory neurons that can get taken out in dorsal midbrain. So it's like you've taken out the brakes, and everything is just uh, retracting and uh, activating at once. And if you have, you know, if you have multiple rectus muscles pulling at the same time, the entire eye is just going to kind of go inwards into the eye socket because where else? What else is it going to do? Number four is light near pupillary dissociation, which happens in a few rare things like uh, syphilis, I think we talked about, but it's a big, if you see it, it's a big indicator that dorsal midbrain is also potentially at play. And physiologically, this is why it's, uh, or it relates a little bit more to its other name that Ben mentioned, the pretectal syndrome. Because this light near pupillary dissociation happens because of damage at the pretectal area, which uh, is right, you know, it's near the Edinger-Westphal nucleus. It's involved in the entire uh, parasympathetic pupillary innervation to the iris sphincter muscles. And just to explain a little bit of why, you know, this, again, light near pupillary dissociation, what is it? It's when uh, when you shine your light in your pupils, nothing is reacting, but if you present as someone a near target, they'll be able to have the normal pupillary response looking at something up close. So why why do their pupils, you know, react in one situation but not the other? The combination triad comes from a cortical input. The input goes into the pupillary pathway after the pretectal nuclei. So it can it kind of bypasses the pretectal nuclei, which is why you still get a near mm. response. Cool. And then they can get skew deviation which is a complicated cause of vertical... <laughs> I defer to yeah. Amanda. Sorry. Which we, yeah. go, which we won't go into detail. We'll probably do a whole episode on skew deviation because it, it, it's like it's like a whole thing um, the, with the torsional yeah. components and stuff. But, you know, the main four to really know is exactly what Andrew reviewed. And if he doesn't mind, I'll review them again. They are the big four. We have to just know these kind of cold. Upgaze paresis, lid retraction, convergence retraction nystagmus, and light near pupillary dissociation. So that's dorsal midbrain syndrome. When uh, when we'd, when we'd look for patients in his uh, neuro-op clinic who he suspected of having Paranoid syndrome, our attending would always be hammering those last two especially into me. He'd be like, make sure you can find contra- convergence and retraction and make sure you don't forget to check for light near pupil dissociation because, you know, how many of you have actually yeah. checked the pupillary response to near recently it's easy to miss <laughs> yeah definitely easy to miss like all these things are really like you know even retraction is easy to to miss if you're not yeah. really looking for it so and it's a life or death thing like ben mentioned because you're talking about at least in this age category a potential uh, infarct right right so if we bring it back to me and the ed on that night kind of leaning towards blepharospasm so psp like we were talking about in the last disease process but and and the other thing is you know he could look down which i did not know to be a component of dorsal midbrain syndrome so i thought hmm, this is probably psp but you know just to be safe because i don't know if this is brand new is this like what he's talking about when he says feels like his eyes are rolling into his head should we just get a ct scan and make sure it's not you know in his age category something like a hemorrhage 
And then that's what we did. And Germal, please, <sighs> can I get it? Fully work here. Can we? Okay, okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. The uh, <laughs> the CT head showed a massive intraventricular anthalamic hemorrhage in this gentleman that required me to transfer him immediately to our you know large quaternary care center, Yale New Haven Hospital, to get evaluated by neurosurgery. So. The thing that threw me off the most, the two things I mentioned, one, the down gaze limitation. So if we go back, up and down gaze limitation, um, you know, coordination is are both controlled by the dorsal midbrain. It's just that up gaze is more superficial. It's closer to like the cerebral aqueduct and the fourth ventricle and such. So it typically is what's compressed first. So you typically only get an up gaze limitation. But if you have a large mass effect like this patient had, then they can also have a down gaze limitation. That's what I found out after reading more about it when the CT scan came back. And then the last thing is I thought he had blepharospasm. That was actually the convergence retraction <laughs> nystagmus. His eye was kind of like, I, I really thought convergence retraction would be a, a lot more obvious. But basically, you know, I just saw his lids just kind of subtly, very, very subtly twitching as he was trying to look up or look down. Um, and it was worse when looking up. And that was actually just convergence retraction. It was not so blepharospasm. maybe for so, a technique thing, if you think you had, like, art kept his eyelids open while he was looking up and down, do you think you would have seen the eye itself, the globe, kind of retract a bit, maybe? It's possible in retrospect, but uh, I think I was cognitively biased because I was like, oh, he has blepharospasm. So he has some kind of, you know, yeah. problem here. So I don't know if like it. I mean, I think in the, the next time I see such a case, hopefully. No, I think this is it for you. Notice, but, <laughs> I think uh, I don't <laughs> we'll think see. this thing comes up too often, see. but nice work again. So just to clarify for everybody, the final diagnosis yeah. was definitely dorsal midbrain, correct? From that large thalamic hemorrhage. It was definitely, definitely oh, yeah. dorsal midbrain syndrome. So, and they, they think that he had some kind of AV malformation possibly in mm. his ventricle that bled. So yeah. that's what they thought, but because his blood pressure was normal, you know, he wasn't, he had hypertension, hyperlipidemia, otherwise it wasn't a huge risk for stroke or thing, wow. like, things like that. So an unusual case, but it's, uh, you know, honestly, a reason to yeah. study for opioids. And this I feel like thing, you know? one of the other things to remember about them is you don't hear about intraventricular cerebral hemorrhages that often except in these cases relating to eyes. Right. I mean, I think that's where it drains, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. So that's the case of the week. Uh, nice is there work, anything ben. else you want to talk about? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's, I just thought it was a good uh, teaching case and a good way to talk about all these things in one, uh, you know, one lecture. Yeah, if you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes 4 ears with number four. Um, we've also got our website, which is eyes 4 with the number four. If you'd like to support the podcast, a rating review on iTunes or wherever you find our podcast is super helpful. And we'll see you guys next week. Yep. Bye. Bye.